This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. City University Television presents the American Theatre Wing Seminars. Working in the theatre. This seminar, performance. to the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre. These seminars are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, located right in the heart of Times Square, 42nd Street, where Broadway, Off-Broadway, and Off-Off-Broadway all meet, where the magic of theatre comes about. And that magic is sent across the country, and from across the country, from its regional theatres, come the best of theatre to help replenish our New York theater. These seminars are an outgrowth of the Wing's many, many programs that were started a long time ago. We created the Tony Awards, but that's only part of the American Theater Wing. From our legendary stage door canteens up through our hospital programs, which goes into hospitals in the metropolitan areas, aid centers as well, our Saturday Theater for Children, which create a love and a desire for theater at the earliest possible age. The American Theater Wing has been there. It helps the community through the theater. It is committed to doing just that. I think the Wing is perhaps the oldest running continuous performance in the city, certainly as well as throughout the country. That which was started so many, many years ago continues today, all of the programs. And these programs that you are about to listen to, these seminars on working in the theater, is designed to give you an insight into the backstage, into the back scenes of what it is to work in the theater. I hope that it will give you as much information, as much pleasure, and as much joy when you next go to the theater as it does me. I'd like to introduce our co-moderators. Jean Dalrymple, who is a author, director, and producer, and is a hardworking member of the Board of Directors of the American Theatre Wing. Brendan Gill, who is an author and a critic and hardworking member of the New Yorker magazine, and also a board member. And without any ado, I'm going to turn the seminars over to these two capable and experienced co-moderators, and they in turn will introduce the panelists. Thank you all for being here. Can I go first? Well, just to begin with, it's not easy to be in the theater. You have to know, among other things, left from right. 
I'm beginning and from the right. Uh, Robert Morris, known to me in his youth as Bobby, distinguished actor, equally distinguished uh, golfer, who has <laughs> made a character uh, out of Truman Capote, which is uh, so intense, so funny and sad at once that, that it is beyond anything that anybody could have believed who had ever known Truman. It's an extraordinary thing. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm so proud of how well this has been invented in this man, inside this man's head, as well as in the text uh, that was left behind uh, by Capote himself. And, and the Kathleen Turner, who is now starring uh, in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. We were instructed, we moderators, that we were not to give the resumes of people because it took up too much time. Gene disapproves of this strongly, but I dare to follow instructions and simply say that of Kathleen and then pass on to Gene. <laughs> All right, I'll follow the rules. It says here, Irene Worth, legendary international star of stage and screen. <laughs> <laughs> I can't really follow the rules <laughs> with Kate Burton because I've known her so long and loved her so much, and she's so wonderful in an ensemble playing of some Americans abroad. She's just wonderful in it. And then next is uh, that great man, Mr. Hulf, <laughs> who's one of, <laughs> of the... Uh, um, few good men in that great play. <laughs> and then, of course, next to me is really a great, great star, Time Daly. I can just let it go at that because it really says everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I would you, do you want to start, Gene? Yeah. That was not a rule. That wasn't a rule. I just thought... <laughs> I wanted to ask Kate about uh, the ensemble playing of uh, the show you're in because it's so different from all the stars that are playing here. It's a very different approach and a very difficult one. And uh, we just discussed it a little bit the other night. I wish you would elucidate. Well, it's been um, a, a really uh, incredible experience working on... Uh, some Americans Abroad um, by Richard Nelson. Um, I think for all of us Americans who were in it for the first time, it had, of course, been done in England before, and um, uh, by a British cast playing American professors and professors' wives and students. And uh, they had started at the Royal Shakespeare Company at the Pitt and brought it over here, and Richard had been commissioned to write it there and it was something we didn't really know how we would feel about being this kind of second group to have done, to have been playing Americans, although the first time they were played by British people. And um, I think for me particularly, it was a fascinating experience because my character hardly talks. And uh, I have been in a lot of plays in which I talk a lot. So <laughs> it, it was incredible. At first, I wasn't sure about playing a character of this size or um, even this, this type of person. And what happened to me in the process is that I realized that working in an ensemble, working with a group of people, all of whom have around the same size parts, so there is one character who is 
through the whole play, he's sort of the head of the department. But the rest of us are all kind of equal. And how amazingly refreshing and nurturing that is as an actor, and how it can go off the tracks so easily. And if one character is not quite with us, or uh, one actor is not feeling well even, or something like that, the whole play can kind of get off kilter and off balance. And it just really proved to me the power um, of the ensemble and the power of the team effort. We've had a couple of understudies go on and just changes the whole you know, chemistry of, of the play. And so that's, it's been almost like rediscovering um, why I'm an actress. And it's been just an amazing experience. Very good. Yeah. The very opposite of that is what Robert Morris is doing. And so the obvious question is, how lonely do you feel on stage <laughs> all by yourself? It's lonely at the top. <laughs> uh, I believe that uh, one of the uh, lucky things about it, it's amazing that the first show I ever did was The Matchmaker, and I had to speak to the audience, you know, go out and just talk to the audience. I have no other actors on the stage. So I guess the old expression is lonely out there without bread and water and all of that. <laughs> but, uh, and then I, I had an opportunity once to do Play It Again, Sam, which was a Woody Allen play. And most of that is monologue to the audience. So it sort of uh, prepared me in a way when I received the script of Truman Capote that uh, there was going to be nobody else on the stage and I would be, have to talk to the audience or myself or conjure up images and uh, continually throughout the evening. It has its problems because uh, um, the fact is that you're always looking out there and uh, I know most of these actors on the stage realize that, that if you do peek out the audience now and then, most of us do anyways, uh, we see people asleep. <laughs> 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 and uh, uh, I mean, most of us have seen that, you know, uh, whether it's one man show or two. We talk and we go, look at the one But when you're doing a one man show and you see people asleep, you tend to, you have to control, you have to be a little bit. <clears throat> have what did a you say, wake up? Discipline. <laughs> you have to have a discipline. Sometimes I have talked to them, you know, like, shh, don't wake that person up. <laughs> so it does have its problems in that way. And you can get. Uh, you have to arrive, I think, at a certain uh, uh, understanding of where you are. You know, you, you, you start a show, and then you grow in it, and you get used to the audience, and use the audience. Some nights you go this far down, some far this far up, and you just get used to the audience, and sometimes they're receptive, and sometimes they're not as much. So, but you do get uh, sort of used to that, and uh, you just, just go out there and do your work, you know. One night, uh, I'm not being verbose, no, uh, one night I was out there and I noticed in the front row a beautiful woman in a Chanel suit with lovely earrings and had a script in front of her. And, uh, <laughs> and I have to talk to the audience all the time and I look down and I see and she's smiling at me and she's turning the script and I notice, <laughs> I notice it is the script of the show. It is actually she's the white sheet <laughs> script of the show and I'm smiling at her and she's looking at me and she's turning and she's going <laughs> and I think it's a lawsuit. Yeah. I, I, I think that that's the lawyer from the, uh, my mind, you know how your mind 
Truman's death. There's a lawyer who represents the Truman Capote estate or what have you, or, or someone else that did a play and is going to sue Jay Press and Allen and Lewis Allen, and he's there, she is there just to bother me and um, smile and turn the page and see word for word. Now, I'm giving word for word, and she's looking, and I, after about five minutes of it, I'm really getting a little upset, but I have to carry on. But every once I look at her, and she's always turning the page. And I got to one point in the play where I looked over to her and I said, I, I even talked to her, you know, I went, well, you know what, what I mean. She smiled and turned the page. Undaunted, <laughs> undaunted. And then I went, okay, I gotta stop that. I have to concentrate, do the part, and forget about it. At the end of the act, I went off the stage and I, you know, grabbed the stage manager, not literally, <laughs> said, what the, well, <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> what's going on? There's something in the front row of the script of the play. They're going page by page. Go on. Well, as she runs out front, she comes back and she says, oh, Bobby, we didn't tell you. The woman uh, can't uh, hear. And she's uh, just one. I said, oh, for God's sake. I said, well, don't you think it would have been right if you told me that? I mean, rather than see somebody turning the script and going, no, no, no. I says, please run out. I said, please run out and apologize if she caught anything in my manner that would have been one of, what the hell are you doing? And she was all tears when the stage went. She said, oh, I didn't realize that at all. And they told her not to worry. And I threw her candy later on in the show. <laughs> I mean it in a nice way, and, and, and it worked out. But that's, that's one of the problems of being alone on the stage. Or yeah. Not that actors would ever be paranoid and worrying about things like this. Did it bother your performance? Did you, did you feel that, that, that part of you was being taken up with, with this performance that was going on in front of you? Well, um, so many things bother my performances. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to weigh it. You know, uh, I mean, I don't know how to judge it like that. I try to look at yourself. I'm not the audience, and uh, I don't think so. But uh, uh, you know, I have to. Be, I have to be careful about not getting a little bit upset or a little too up. You know, up, mm -hmm. but uh, obviously affected me slightly. But I don't think anyone in the audience would have noticed. That's the important. Another variety of this ensemble of versus all by oneself uh, is, oddly enough, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, because it's a very strangely made play with a series of turns that people have to do these things and, and then go off, like with turning and things like that. So you can't have a sense of ensemble in the same well, way you do, at you all. do it. I mean, the, in the, the structure of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof is, is that the, the first act is almost entirely uh, the character Maggie's almost a monologue, um, about 40 minutes worth, uh, playing off character Brick, and then he's the constant factor in the second act, then Big Daddy comes in and, and I'm off for 40, 45 minutes. Then the third act is quite, it's all ensemble, uh, with uh, surrounding Big Mama, essentially. So it's almost as though there were three different styles of plays mm -hmm. in each act. It's almost a different style of playing. Um, and. You know, I used to have a, a deal with Charles Durning. I said, look, if they stay after the first act, it's because it's I'm good. If they leave after the second act, you're dead. You know, <laughs> uh, you know because if they stay for both acts, then we're all right. You yeah. know, if they stay for the third act. But there's no, there's no way my character can affect or, or uh, change uh, the way the play is flowing in the second act, which is very odd mm -hmm. uh, to feel so, so out of it. Um, but uh, it's in good hands. Durning I, is doing I, fine. I never, 
I never read whether uh, Williams himself was aware of, of the degree to which that was a monologue in the beginning. Do you, did you read yeah, about that? He, so? Yeah, he writes that, um, that he had he had intended it actually almost entirely as a monologue. He wasn't even going to bring Brick on that as early as he does on stage for a long time, have her, have her almost, you know, just one presence on stage throughout, but found that he needed he needed uh, to play, he needed more to play off the character. More. It's one of those things where the director, Howard Davies, uh, was a wonderful, wonderful British director. He said, uh, when I was just trying to break the back of the script, you know, when you get to the point where you're almost off book but not quite, and so it's driving you mad when you miss those, one of those little down words that, you know, she, he says, yeah, it's, you know, the actress picks up the script and reads the first act and goes, look at this. I talk for 50 minutes. <laughs> and then you put the book down, you go, oh, God, <laughs> I talked for 50 minutes. John <laughs> Daly goes into monologues, too, in, in songs, you know, leaves everything and just stands there and gives out a terrific song, which is also being out of the play for a moment, or very much in the play, whichever way you take it. The hardest well, thing must be. The hardest thing must be to get from the moment of speech to song as okay. if it were natural to do not so. Not in this one. Not in this one. No. It's just no. built it that is the way. Hardest there there isn't a wasted No, it goes play. right into no. it. And there isn't a, a song that doesn't advance the, the right. story. Yeah. There's actually only one uh, uh, soliloquy, and it's at the very end. Yeah. The rest of the time, she's talking to somebody. Yeah. Uh, um, we're trying to isolate a piece for the Tonys, and it's very hard to do because I don't have an isolated piece. Mm -hmm. That's me touching the mic. Yeah. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Uh, ensemble play. I always have thought of acting as a team sport, um, uh, much more baseball than tennis. Uh, I think I, I think of ensemble work as being always um, to be the listener or the talker. It doesn't really matter. You're in the play, and um, I love rooting into the other actor. I feel safe there. I mean, the thing you're doing is awful dangerous. It's yeah. it, to me more like cabaret or something. It's just you and them and. Every truth you know is you know, real dangerous stuff because to have the other actor to, to hang on to yeah. is, a, is a great, lovely thing. The hardest part for me in developing Rose was the turn because uh, standing out there by yourself in the spotlight and holding the stage for that, only those few minutes, I don't know how long the thing is really, depends on the night and how tired you are. Uh, <laughs> um, but that part was difficult for me. I thought, you know, the, 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 show, the show girl that's stepping out on your own is very... Uh, uh, incredibly personal and and difficult. And the other stuff was it was a breeze compared to that that bit. Um, but it's only the one place. In the other songs, she's always she's talking to somebody, which is why I can't do them like numbers because they're scenes. Uh, all of them, except for the audition scene. And the audition scene is an audition scene, you know, which is it happens on the stage. Part of what makes the musical work is because it's about the theater, so that going into musical numbers is natural. Uh, the degree of projection for song as compared to speech you know, is the technical problem, I would think. Because you well, in really theory, it's the same thing. Talking yeah, is the same cool. thing as singing, only you're just, you're, you have designated pitches and you hold them longer. At least I, have, I have a great new teacher. And uh, the other part of my job I, I like is that you get to learn the whole time if you pay attention. The whole time always changes. And I have a, 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 a teacher here uh, named uh, Keith Davis. Uh that I've been working with, that a lot of people know, that I was yeah. sent to when I got in vocal trouble. But I think my vocal trouble was really more behind so much talking and so much tension than behind singing. Mm -hmm. yeah. Anyway, he's, uh, uh, in theory, singing and, act and talking are the same thing. It's all storytelling. 
And when the songs are made like they are and the lyrics are so good, you can, you can float on that material. You know, you've got speeches you can just ride on. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Halson, do you just walk into the character? Is it natural for you? The part I play in A Few Good Men is uh, unusual for me uh, from, from most of my work because it's uh, someone who's functioning very well in the real world. <laughs> so it, uh, there's, there's less for me to do, uh, the assumption I'm making is that I'm functioning well in the world, so there's less for me to do before a performance. Um, to get ready, I, I, I simply have to make sure that my sense of humor is intact and my desire is uh, as revved up as uh, it can be on any given uh, Night. I think of the play. Uh, Desire for what? To act. Oh, to act. <laughs> yeah. Which, which, um, it's uh, my first job in New York was in Peter Schaffer's play Equus, and I worked there for fifteen months. Nine of those months as an understudy, and then six months playing on my own. And so this is the first time since then that I've done uh, a long run, going into our ninth month of working. And so there's that thing that happens after a certain number of months where y you can lose touch with what it was that was firing you up five months ago. Or really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really. Really. Um, uh, <laughs> Working in the theater. Yeah. Every day. Yeah. Yeah. It's, Every day. It, they it don't becomes a job. Yeah, I wanted to say um, uh, one thing uh, Kate made me think of um, about uh, sort of finding out how much other people's performances um, have an effect on what you're doing. Um, in Equus, I had an extraordinary part, and it was the first uh, big job I'd had, my first job in New York. And um, I got mail. People wrote me letters about what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And I thought this was just amazing that I was doing so well that people wanted to write to me all the time. And then the two actors that were playing my parents went on vacation for two weeks. And the letters stopped. <laughs> and when they came back, the letters started up again. And it was an excellent lesson to have learned very early that every performance affects the way the audience perceives what you're doing. That's what Kate said yeah. a minute ago. Yeah. So um, uh, I thought, well, okay, okay, I have this great part, but it's also uh, just one piece of, of the whole tapestry. Um, I'm working with a company of 20 people now, and it's a remarkable ensemble uh, in which I am essentially the glue or the thread through, um, but it functions very much like a... Um, a piece of, of music or a woven fabric in that every piece is, is Well, um, almost all plays are ensemble plays. Yeah. yeah. How are the letters that. coming? <laughs> <laughs> How are the letters coming? No. <laughs> no one's gone on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty nerve-wracking moment for you. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's really hard. I always remember you as, I guess, everybody who goes to the theater does. 
in Tiny Alice. Tell us something about that. It was so fascinating, and it still is to all of us. Well, it is interesting, but could I just say one more thing about uh, the difference that I hear as an actress uh, in these problems of being a solo performer. And... Um, <laughs> <laughs> A solo, the difference between being a solo performer and an ensemble uh, performer. And I uh, am interested to, to note that there's absolutely no difference whatsoever because the uh, problem of a true, in which Mr. Morse is giving a performance of genius, is absolutely based upon his energy and his concentration. So he's not showing off. He is subject to the text. And he's creating the world of the theater for the audience. And this increases the concentration of the audience. Therefore, the exchange between the actor and the audience is total. Now, the same thing happens in uh, a cooperative play, an ensemble play. Uh, Miss Turner, uh, also giving a most marvelous performance, uh, which I saw on the opening night, has these different uh, problems of being uh, a s giving a sort of solo of soliloquy uh, and then uh, being off a bit and then uh, being part in the ensemble. Now, that play cannot advance, uh, as Mr. House has just said, unless everybody is listening I mean on the stage, and everybody is participating. And I would say that the marvelous performance uh, of Big Mama is due in part to the fantastic concentration that Miss Turner is giving to her. She is listening. She is, now you'd, a very bad uh, time in one's life is when perhaps you're uh, beginning, I, I've gone through various periods of acting styles. And I have acted with actors who have been so totally selfish that when they didn't have to talk anymore, they relaxed. <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't mean relaxing, relaxing <laughs> in your body. Of course, we have always got to be relaxed, but we've got to be as finely tuned and alert as a cat. And because you're listening, your brain is working. And it is the thought of the actor which creates the evening. And that's... Yes. Thank you. Well, <laughs> we're all engaged in a form of ensemble acting here. Isn't it wonderful how quickly Irene heard the whir of that camera? Yeah. Uh, it was perfectly wonderful because instantly she could be a star turn for us, give us great information, well worth our <laughs> hearing, and all the rest of us were actually listening intently <laughs> to you. I, I wish to tell you, Brendan, that my purr of the camera is very minimal. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a, a stage, a, a screen actor or a television actor. But I am a stage actor, yeah. <laughs> and therefore I know that I want everyone to see <laughs> <laughs>
just take that around. Tell me how the difference is between those who have oh, done my. screen and stage. I'm going to pass on that. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, because I, I think there are people here that I would rather defer to have done far more film work presently than I have, and uh, I'd rather listen to that. I right. Do you want to start with the about energy. Oh, I mean, I didn't you were talking because about Because there's a tremendous amount of energy that's needed. Yeah. Well, let me put it. No, good. I was just going to say, obviously, the great thing is that you have to sustain energy on stage mm -hmm. for such a long time and keep pouring it out and pouring it mm -hmm. out. And, and uh, that isn't ordinarily necessary except with a few European directors who want to do long 20-minute or 30-minute takes <laughs> and things like that. But Kathleen, yeah. you were... I, let me I say one thing. I, I, I have a question I would like to ask the people that have done a lot of film. I, I've heard so many different uh, thoughts on it. Uh, I believe that the, I've heard like the emotions can be softer or easier. You can talk like this and get more of a feeling into something and be more intimate. Where on the stage you might have to say something to, like I just said. You have to be more intimate and more feeling. You have to be that loud <laughs> you know, or something like that. Is that. Would that necessarily always be true or is it sometimes, would you feel these people that do film and TV that, that, that a lot, that uh, uh, it depends upon the style of the production or the style of a certain scene that you're doing because certain scene or certain style, you may have to be a larger anyways. Yeah, I find it, I do, I do a lot of, of film work <coughs> and um, I found when I was rehearsing Cat, uh, when I was rehearsing Maggie, there was a certain place where the director, she goes very, she's pleading, you know, uh, haven't I done time enough, haven't I? Serve my term, can't I apply for a pardon? And she's pleading with him and then goes, goes right into, you know, why don't you get ugly? Why? She goes from very low, very soft, very needy to a very angry, very high point. And the director was saying to me, no, I need more. I need a, a higher, higher, and a lower, low. I said, oh, uh, try again. And I found working up toward it again a, um, a nudge in my mind, a little, uh, big enough as though I have an automatic pilot sort of for Instinct. my film, my film work, something too big looks grotesque on film. An emotion, it doesn't have to be size either. It's an intensity as well that is too, it does not translate uh, on film for me. It can be too big, it can be or come across simply as, as grotesque. So I have a kind of a watchman in my mind uh, and I found this and I said, holy cow, I'm, you know, I'm holding myself down, but this is not film. So I said to Howard, stand back and let's do <laughs> it again. At <laughs> uh, which point we threw him out of the mind and, got, and uh, finally started, got, started to get the range that I wanted for Maggie, but hadn't realized that I automatically keep a watch on the size and the intensity of my emotions when I'm doing film. Isn't it uh, greatly mental? Hmm? Isn't it greatly mental? Isn't it the metal That watchman is in oh your yes. head, but oh, yes, yes. yeah. oh, yeah, it doesn't depend either on size of voice. Yeah. So it's really I more, mean, it's more the intention. It's the intensity the of the mind. Commitment. Yeah, which is, it's dangerous on film. It, it yeah. doesn't translate the same. But also on, on film, it's, it's the but case with the great people like Garbo, that their faces are so thrilling simply to look at. Oh, you can be so incredibly specific on film. That's for glorious. For a long time, you can just stare at that face and do the mm -hmm. least little thing. That would, that sufficed. Well, that depends on whether it's a close-up or not, doesn't it? Uh, that's <laughs> right. And if you're a great director, you may, like Bergman's, uh, when he closes in on faces like that and lets those, watch those faces for a long time, that becomes thrilling in a different like way European from the stage. Uh, plainly, I might. <laughs> <laughs> but you were saying, uh, before we 
came on this morning that uh, oddly enough, when one has a cold or some other, something like that, often it means that you concentrate even harder on oh, yeah. the um, projection well, of know, energy. You know, when you're a little tired or you have a little, little bit of a cold or something, sometimes you're better. Perhaps because you've got something that you're immediately overcoming, or perhaps it takes off the edge that actors sometimes push too hard. Do you know? What do you, how do you handle that sort of thing? Kate? <laughs> <laughs> you ensemble actress, yeah. <laughs> the ensemble, Kate, the ensemble actress. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I find uh, actually that I get much more relaxed. Mm. And much more, and because my energy, I don't have a lot of energy. Yeah. I'm much more conserving of my energy, and so I use exactly what I need as opposed to pushing. You know what I'm saying? Irene, don't you think acting is mostly mental? Yes. I it do. should be. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think a great actor is all mental. I think that an actor who has the power to concentrate enough to grab the audience's mind and hold <coughs> it is the great actor. I, I agree that I think that the ability to concentrate is, is the difference between a great yeah. or, or a lesser performance. Right. Uh, the ability to simply you know, to focus to such an extent to, to make that yeah. world so secure. But the difference between the, to me, the difference between the movies and the theater is the presence of the, of the audience. Mm -hmm. and the act, well, what I really mean is the presence of the actor. Yeah. If I'm in the movies, which I have been a little bit, or in the television, which I have been a lot, which means you go into people's houses, and <laughs> the movies, they think your mouth is this big, and television, they think you're four inches high. Yeah. But in a room with people, and I loved your reminder of this side of the room, that's a very wise and knowing thing. In a room with people, um, the experience, ha the, the communication happens together. Right. Between you and that group that night, next night's a different group. That effect of who you're talking to is amazing to me. In a film, you have to allow the thing to look at you. You supply them with raw material. Somebody else cuts it up and makes the sculpture mm -hmm. and sends it away. Mm -hmm. the, the actor's job is, is very different, I think. it's not nearly as satisfying. <coughs> I, I don't think you, you know, when by the time the product comes out, a film comes out six to eight months after yeah. you finish photography, you're really emotionally detached from it. Uh, you've hopefully had another job since then, and, <laughs> you know. And so you don't really, even whatever the response might be, you, you, don't, you don't really get that much satisfaction out of it. Not like standing up there and having them laugh. Or, or I think the more glorious thing sometimes is the, you know, when someone goes, oh, you know, oh, give me that. You know? yeah. <laughs> or there's tone quiet. Mm -hmm. You know, you can wait as long as you want to. Yeah. Because they're just yeah. waiting for what you do next. It's but there is this tension, in, in, of course, on the theater between the audience and, and, and the cast of the play, where, and I have the dark theory that the audience not only wants the actors to succeed and to be oh, emblematic yeah. of yeah. success, but also, on some level, wants the actor to fail and to prove himself a member of the human race through failure. Since most of the people in the audience are sure. And that tension <laughs> is, a, is a thrilling thing to me. I, I think that has to do with. Uh, uh, Whenever there's an accident or whenever there's something that's clearly gone amiss, <laughs> the audience seems to rise to the oh, occasion, yeah, as sports. usually does yes. the company, and everyone has a great time because we've all uh, exhibited the fact that we're fallible <laughs> yeah. and that at any moment something uh, can oh, go wrong yeah. also, anywhere in our world. Also, the audience loves the theater, yeah. as yeah. we do. And they like to make believe. I remember once when I was playing Portia, at the very end of the play, we were all dancing round and dancing off, and my curls fell off. <laughs> <laughs>
And then we danced around, and I picked them up, and the audience burst into applause. They were so happy. I got my, they thought it was a joke and adored it, and it's all part of make-believe <laughs> in the play, and yeah. you know, and that is what makes the uh, relationship between the audience and the actors so thrilling. Tom, you mentioned before um, so many months of working in a show. Uh, you had a tremendous amount of energy that you give to a few good men. How do you sustain it? And <laughs> we were just talking about this. <laughs> what do you do? The, the uh, number of potions and concoctions <laughs> that we're stuffing down our throats. Um, uh, uh, the, the you know. The, Chinese herbs in capsules, every assortment, and sublingual B12. All my fast changes include something goes into my mouth. Um, it's it's teas, yeah, energetic powders. What do you bring to it? What about apart from the things that you take? What do you bring to it? Where does it come from? The desire to do your best every chance you get. That's what um, will fuel me and keep me going to know this is an opportunity that I won't have tomorrow night. And maybe tonight I'll find the solution to that moment that for seven and a half months has been troubling me or that I'll be able to uh, put the best of my work all together in one performance or, or a lot of it. Um, it's, the, it's the one time with that audience um, that often will get me, keep me going when, you know, I'm sort of crawling on my knees up the steps to, to after some fast <laughs> change, after two hours of going nonstop. Um, when you have a living playwright, is it possible that you can also hit upon a problem like that and deal with it with the playwright and the director? You can't do that plainly with Tennessee Williams. But uh, Tennessee Williams himself did it. <laughs> the living ones, believe me. But, but Williams himself did it all the time, sometimes yeah. to the advantage of the play and sometimes not to the advantage yeah. of the play. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've made a great crusade, uh, not particularly successful, uh, with, with this play uh, because it was first written as a film. And so the part is built um, not specifically as a stage part, um, in terms of where the rests aren't, and in uh, it's 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 it, there are all kinds of uh, just practical things like having to change your clothes where normally you could have a tiny rest of a minute and a half. You know, I'm running out one side, down under the basement, around and up, changing clothes, and walk right back on without a time to um, stop at all. I put the things in my mouth, um, and. Uh, uh, I, I didn't make a lot of success in my crusade to look at the work just in terms of the fact that it was on stage and, and the way the part was built. Although um, we did have some, some talks about that. The excellent thing is, is because uh, the writer is with us, there's always the opportunity to pursue that and, and uh, make some headway if, if possible. What happened with, with your play uh, in terms of the English production and the American production? Did the playwright ch make any changes especially? Not, not a one. I, I will say to the great credit of our director, um, uh, Roger Michelle, who's just so wonderful. Um, and I, I only say this because I was in a production of a Wild Honey in which it was, again, the second time around. And, um, um, 
that production, we were made to feel like we were doing the National Theater production, like from the first day of rehearsal was, yeah. you know, wherever we moved. I think you'll find if you pick up the cup at this moment yeah. and turn, you know, which was, <laughs> you know, a little despairing. Um, but this one was fabulous. Richard was with us all the time, Richard Nelson. And we were never made to feel, it was our total creation, mm -hmm. which was so wonderful. I was also going to say in terms of the energy thing, that funnily enough, I have a two-year-old son, and I thought, oh, this will be great. You know, I said, you know, I'm on, I have like six scenes, seven scenes in the show, I don't talk very, I'm on this, you know, I'm listening a lot. I am just as exhausted doing this play as I was doing Isabella and Measure for Measure last mm -hmm. year. I mean, and sometimes even more so. My days off, I, I'm like, yeah, I was thinking, I was thinking, I have a two and a two and a half year old daughter, and I, I think this is fabulous. I'll go to work at six, and I'll have my days <laughs> free to play with my daughter. Oh, forget <laughs> it. Oh Lord, how me, I'm more, I had more time really on my lunch breaks on filming, you know. <laughs> yeah. I know. I want to say something to that. I can see in your face. No, no, uh, darling, I was just thinking that uh, that is what I did say a little while ago, is that the, the, the really fine actor is acting with other people, and the listening, and that energy that is expended in what I call the exchange of thought, as Jean says, there's so much acting, is mental. It's the power of the thought, the power of the brain, and that exchange is exhausting. Yeah. And, and the, uh, the actor who has the greatest concentration and can hold the audience from beginning to end is the great actor. But there are the two different uh, stars. Laurence Olivier, for example, was very physical. And, and Alec Guinness is, is very quiet. And, and the, the, he, he, he commands an entire audience through immobility, and whatever is going on in his head is what is holding uh, the audience. But not well, all of them were ensemble actors, were they? Yeah. Uh, not like us. <laughs> <laughs> no, but Olivier had that great power of concentration. No matter what he was hmm. doing, he held you every word. But he counted on yes. physicality. He yeah. counted on his yeah, body. Yeah, that had nothing to do with his mind. I was going to twist it around, Jean, suggest that uh, a great actor is entirely physical, is he not? And then I wanted somebody to say yes to that. He's no. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. Yeah. Sometimes it feels more like athletic experience than an artistic one. Mm -hmm. But a second show, mm -hmm. when yeah. you drive the play, uh, uh, in my job, when you're running, rushing around, I have, you have one of those little things that's got a straw in it. Like a like plastic a, um, thing, like a runner. bicycle one. Yeah, right. Yes. Sort of <laughs> grab a little slug. And just talk a little bit about your background of what what enabled you to become the very, very good actors that you are today. Where did you start? Where did you come from? I started with uh, I started at the top. Uh, <laughs> well done. No, I did. I started, I made, I, my first job was with that great actress, Elizabeth Bergner. And uh, I made my debut after my, the first play I did was with her, uh, called Escape Me Never. And, uh, and then I made my debut on Broadway with her in The Two Mrs. Carrolls. So. That makes it seem very simple and straightforward. It was yeah. just and then you learn to speak that way. It's very yeah. simple. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh, we're going to do that. Why don't we do it like that? Why not? 
Is that okay? I'll Mom? tell her story. All right. <laughs> <laughs> you want to take it? She'll tell mine. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, um, I came from an acting family, so I think I probably started acting when I was about one or something, one and a half. Actually, I did step onto the stage during a performance of Camelot in 1961, apparently at the age of four. <laughs> it was um, the moment where um, Arthur realizes that something's going on between Lancelot and Guinevere, <laughs> and I was sitting on the lap of the dresser and saw my dad get very choked up, and I thought, what's wrong? You know, I must comfort him. So I walked <laughs> onto the stage <laughs> to do that. Um, and tried to do it a second time, apparently, a few weeks later. So they knew then. That was the story. <laughs> that, was, that was a good moment. What about formal training after that? Um, I, well, I went to a formal training after yeah, that. No, no, no need for it after training. that. No. Yeah. Your son is malingering. He's two, and he still hasn't interrupted No, I'll tell you, he comes to the theater. He makes a beeline for the stage. My yeah. wife sits there and goes, that's mommy. <laughs> that's mommy. Get that kid out of voice. A very deep, loud voice. Uh, no, I, w um, I went to I had no intention of being an actress because I didn't want to follow in the family tradition, and I went to four years of college, graduated uh, with a degree in history and Russian studies, determined to be a diplomat, um, which has served me in good stead. And, <laughs> and, then, I, and then I thought, oh, no, I better, I better give it a shot, and I went to the Yale School of Drama for three years, much to my dad's chagrin. He wanted me to go to RADA or Lambda, and I said, no, I'm an American. And um, then I also was very fortunate. My first play was with George C. Scott, so I was very lucky. Tom? Uh, I decided I wanted to be an actor when I was 15. Uh, I wanted to be a singer, but my voice changed. <laughs> and, uh, I, I was impatient. And uh, I went away uh, for a year to a school in Michigan where I grew up. Um, called the Interlochen Arts Academy, and then went to North Carolina School of the Arts uh, for my last year of high school and a f couple of years of college. And I was in a big hurry uh, <coughs> to come to New York and to try and work. Um, uh, one thing that I did that I uh, think was the best decision I made was every summer I would go someplace where I thought they were doing work that was the best I could be in close proximity to. So I wasn't going someplace where I could play good parts, but where I could be just a part of good work going on. And had the good fortune to uh, be at a theater where Polly Holiday was working. Mm -hmm. And she uh, <coughs> arranged for me to have a job when I moved to New York, just a um, job job at the Shakespeare Festival, and had gotten me another acting job the summer before, and really kind of paved the way for me to, um, to have an easier time of it in New York than I would have otherwise. Um, About what year was that? Uh, right. 74, <coughs> yeah. And uh, I had been brought up on uh, the APA Repertory Company, came to Ann Arbor every year um, when I was first interested, and also uh, chances to go to Stratford, Ontario, to see the work there. Um, so it was an excellent kind of uh, classical um, background that I was exposed to. My first job uh, in um, New York being Equus, uh, the best lesson for me there was to come in seven months into the run and see Tony Hopkins in his dressing room working on the script. Uh -huh. 
and to see Francis Sternhagen and Michael Higgins and Marion Selvers and Roberta Maxwell and the rest of the company continuing right. month after month after month to improve and to find new answers and better answers. Uh, it, it was an excellent education. Very, very important. Would you like to? Yes, your turn. Uh, <laughs> I was also born in the fam into the family business. Uh, two out of the four of us siblings went into it as a profession. Um, I love stories. I was read a lot of stories as a kid. I liked being a storyteller. Uh, and I went around to find people that knew more about it. I went to college for a year at Brandeis because Jasper Dieter was there, who ran the Hedgerow Theater. He was a, um, an amazing teacher. He taught me uh, stagecraft, how to make a, a stage manager's book, lighting, props, all that stuff. And after he left, uh, uh, they weren't going to let me act. I was also in a hurry until I was a junior, which was forever. Yeah. <laughs> forever. So I flunked out of German and came to work with Philip Burton, this lady's uh, purported grandfather who had a wonderful school. <laughs> um, and went to formal training for two years there. Um, the theory being that if you're going to be an American actor, you also had to be able to move and sing. It was the American Musical and Dramatic Academy, fashioned, I guess, a little bit on Lambda. Um, but the inclusion of all that stuff rather than just acting in isolation. It's nice. I think it's good training because I think it's good for actors to see dancers and dancers to see singers and uh, uh, even if it's not your strong suit to have your whole self as part of what you use and I started to work the the luck of the work took us uh, away from New York and I thought I was leaving the theater forever and got to the coast and found out there was a lot of active stuff going on and did a play a year uh, or better uh, out there sometimes for free in uh, waiver houses and sometimes at the Mark Taper or the, or the uh, Los Angeles Actors Theater um, because I wanted to keep that experience with the live bodies alive. Well, I was making my living in television primarily and sometimes in the movies. Um, but you know, you go where they ask you. That's just the luck, right. of, the, the luck of the draw. I've worked with very fine people as well. Did your famous father help you? Depends on how famous the father is. It's relative. It's, I think it's the more famous the parent, the sort of harder it is to claim your own. Uh, I, I think, you know, being Jim Daly's kid was a different than being Richard Burton's kid or... or uh, what could we say? Um, yeah, I thought that um, was interesting uh, to talk about. Henry Fonda's kid, you know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I know a lot of actors' kids. I know a lot of second-generation people in the business. Uh, and uh, whether or not there's a third generation will be based absolutely on private passion. <laughs> you can't talk anybody into it, and you can't talk anybody out of it. That's all I know. <laughs> absolutely true. Uh, Kathleen, your turn. I was about to, to explain how I became an actor, and I realized, no, no, I'm not an actor. <laughs> <laughs> But I had an explanation, <laughs> but I'll wave it. It's your turn. No, I want to tell how I didn't become an actor. Oh, oh I beg your pardon. I got, a job as, I got a job as an actor, and while I was in it, I said to my friend who was also in the play, why are we working for somebody else? Why don't we do our own act? And I discovered <laughs> I was really a writer producer. <laughs> I was, uh, I grew up in a diplomatic family, so I, and again, I, that has been of great value, I think, in terms of, of the work. Uh, so, I had intended to go to drama school. I was enrolled at the Central School in London, but my father passed away, and we came back to the United States. And I just basically went, I got a degree in theater, um, you know, a Bachelor of Fine Arts from Southwest Missouri State and the University of Maryland, Baltimore. 
But I never felt the school was important as much as I believe once I counted there were maybe 16 nights in the whole school year in which I was not either on stage performing or rehearsing. Um, because that's the, uh, the, the only way you learn to me is to do it, just to keep acting and acting and acting. And college is the only place that's going to let you play 16 one show and 78 another. And, and you get to do parts you would never, ever be cast for in a real financially ruled world. Uh, but you get to experiment, you know, there. So, I mean, the only way, the only purpose of college university to me was just to, the best opportunity to act my ass off, excuse me, um, <laughs> as much as I wanted to. And Very then physical. came to New York. Yes, I am physical. Very physical. Yes. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and then came to New York, and I got, uh, got a soap opera and Broadway at the same time, the first few months I was here. <coughs> excuse me. And then um, did a lot of theater, and then the movies came along, and, uh, and I came back. <laughs> Glad you're back. There you are. Thank you. <laughs> I hail from Massachusetts, and I think my beginnings started back in Newton, Massachusetts. Uh, my family took me to a lot of theater, and uh, I grew up with a lot of uh, <coughs> going arounds around uh, the Schubert and the Colonial Theater and what have you in Massachusetts, and I thought I always wanted to be an entertainer. I was always sort of uh, doing imitations of people or... And I liked uh, athletics. I was, uh, uh, I liked basketball. I liked the sense of movement. I liked the sense of style. And I liked the feeling of it. And I uh, liked a commedia dell'arte. And uh, uh, I also feel that, uh, uh, that that's just how I felt. And I went to, uh, into the Navy. And after the Navy, I was set upon coming to New York to become an actor. And because uh, everybody told me I should. I remember, okay, that sounds all right. <laughs> but I had no idea what it was about or where I was going. Or, and I, for one reason or another, moved in with my brother who was going to the neighborhood playhouse, uh, and Richard Morris. And uh, we lived in Brooklyn. And uh, uh, the cab driver took me from Grand Central Station over to Brooklyn. And uh, we lived in a delicatessen. Uh, 77 North 7th Street, and, uh, you know, and uh, uh, the cab driver says, is this where you're going to live, kid? And I said, yeah, I'm going to be an actor. And he says, don't pay. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> this is on me. <laughs> and it was literally a sheet in front of the window with a coal burning fire. I listened to Ted using this many, 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 many years ago. And I was in New York in the 50s. I didn't know what it was being an actor. And I went to the American Theater Wing, actually for about four or five months in the GI Bill of Rights. And uh, uh, I befriended a secretary there who sent me to do a television show called Name That Tune as a fake contestant. And uh, <laughs> meaning a fake contestant who somebody would do the show before it started and uh, make sure the answers correlated with the questions. And, and it was from that that uh, an agent showed up because they were doing a uh, search for a new master ceremonies. And an agent came over to me and said, typical, you know, just like the old Sid Caesar routine, do you want to be in pictures? <laughs> <laughs> and I went, me? Yeah, you want to be in pictures? And he gives me a card and it said, Abe Newborn, uh, Martin Baum. You know, oh, Abe yeah. Newborn, Martin Baum. It was Marty Baum, actually, and uh, he's the head of some big agency now. Doesn't speak to me, but I was there. <laughs> but anyways, he called me over to his office, and he, I guess he saw me entertaining or doing Maurice Chevalier or whatever I was doing. I don't know. But, and he said, go up to Paramount Pictures because there's a new film called The Proud and the Profane. 
and you, there's a good part for you. And to make a long story short, uh, I was picked by Pearlberg and Seaton to be one of the six people in that movie with Deborah Carr and William Holden. And I went down and, uh, to, the sta to the Virgin Islands and filmed for about five, six weeks, paid 500 a week. This was the greatest thing in the world. Pork chops cost 75 cents. And uh, <laughs> you're a young kid in New York, and this was the greatest thing I'd ever been. You know, Ray Strickland, by the way, I don't know if you all know him, was one of the actors in that movie. And uh, we uh, finished the movie. Now, I did in this movie, I was put on a stretcher and uh, put, the, the, you couldn't recognize me. I mean, all bandages, and carried across the screen. Thank God it was Cinemascope. I worked for length, you know? <laughs> and uh, that was it, and I think Deborah Carr just said, how are you, sailor? And I went, oh, my name is Robert Moise. I'm from here, hello, mom, you know, or something. I mean, it was just made up. We were glad to be in a picture. They were just being nice to the five of us, giving us this small part. And I came back to New York, and there was a meeting with, a th with uh, uh, David Merrick uh, and the, uh, I can't think of the organization. Uh, they used to do theaters in every city. Uh, uh, anyways. Anyway, uh, they were doing the matchmaker. The the, what is it called? The Guild. The Guild. Excuse me, the Theater Guild. And they were doing, uh, producing the matchmaker with Ruth Gordon, and my agent uh, was handling all the people coming in. And the matchmaker uh, was later made into Hello, Dolly. But this was the original Thornton. Well, there was Thornton Wilder, and there was uh, Tyrone Guthrie, and there was David Merrick, and I'm coming in a sweater like I'm dressed now. And uh, uh, I met Dave, uh, Tyrone Guthrie, and he said, how do you do? And he said, uh, well, I think you'd be fine. And wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. I Dave. think you'll be fine. Oh. But you have to wait a minute, wait a minute. Oh, because really you're going to save this for when we come back. We're going to take I'm sorry. A Never mind. I'm sorry. And we'll come back. No, no, no. We're going to come back. And this can you remember your line? I, yeah. I think you know just where you were. <laughs> and we'll come I, I back. I didn't realize I was going to break now for just one Wait, minute or two one. minutes while you stretch. And then we're coming right back. Exactly. Continuing the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre, which are coming to you from the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. On my left is Robert Morse, wonderful performer who is now in True, a marvelous show. And Bobby was in the middle of a story that I interrupted. He promises to pick it up exactly where he <laughs> left it off. So here I was with very. <laughs> So here I was at this time in my life with very little experience, just being in a movie called The Proud and Profane, carried across the stage, nothing much. I didn't even think of it as a, too much of anything. And there, all of a sudden, I was in the offices of David Merrick and the Theater Guild and Ruth Gordon and uh, Tyrone Guthrie. And uh, I'm sitting there, and uh, Mr. Guthrie or David Merrick, or one of them, asked me what experience I've had. And uh, I was just new to New York, and I start to talk, and I realize what an agent does. My agent put his hand over my mouth and said, Mr. Morse has just finished a major motion picture <laughs> with Deborah Carr and William Holden. It'll be released in the fall. And I went, what? <laughs> and he said, yes, and everybody smiled around the room. I noticed that everybody felt a little more confident about me. And I went, yes, that's <laughs> And uh, that's how I got the part. As a matter of fact, it was luck. It really was. I, uh, I did not read. 
uh, Tyrone Guthrie just saw me and said, yes, you're Barnaby and I'm late and I have to go to Canada to direct <laughs> Toilets and Crassida or whatever and uh, I'll see you in rehearsals in about eight weeks and I was thrilled. That was my first break, my first Broadway show with Ruth Gordon and I ran in that for about two years and on the road and everywhere else and uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Again, it seems yeah. so simple when it can be told like I'm that. Sorry to yeah. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. What happened with How to Succeed when you came to that? Did you have to read? Did you audition? Or? No, I'd already worked with Abe Burroughs and uh, Condon and Green and uh, a number of other people in a show called Say Darling, which was uh, based on uh, the, the pajama game. And I played uh, another type of character, Hal Prince, uh, in that show, <laughs> whom I didn't know. but. Uh, I did that character, and then Abe uh, said to me after I'd finished that that uh, he knew I was going in to take me along, which was a musical based on Our Wilderness, in which I played Richard, completely different from anything I'd done. That was my first musical. And uh, he said, I'm writing a play for you called How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. And, uh, and I said, I don't, I said, I don't even want to read it. Uh, I don't have to. I'd just love to work with, you know, I'd be lucky. You know, sure, I'll do it. And uh, two years later, the uh, Furin Martin and Condon Green, Bob Fosse, and uh, Abe Burroughs put together How to Succeed, and little did I know what would happen with that. <coughs> that was when I was very young. <laughs> I don't know if I could do it today, but uh, I ran in that one for a number of years, too, and that was great. I think you could do it today. Yeah. You think so? I think Probably tomorrow. You were then playing with Rudy Valley, of all things. Yes, yes. God, he must be a name that's almost forgotten in American life. But we were talking during the intermission about the fact that so many people in the theater <coughs> nevertheless don't have much knowledge of the history of the theater or of the literature of the theater. And I don't know whether that's the recent development or whether it's always been that way, that people were so eager to act rather than to, to, to learn about what actors in the past had done. Or don't you have a sense that that's true? Well, uh, as pertaining to Rudy Valley, No, or any, anybody <laughs> at all. But Rudy Valley it, it suddenly occurred to well, me. Nobody in this audience probably knows the name well, Rudy Valley. Well, <laughs> no, no. let me say. Yes, the name's over there. I, I certainly didn't when I went into How to Succeed. I mean, I've heard, I heard, uh, heard of the name, but my mother and father back in Newton, Massachusetts, were absolutely struck with the fact that I was going to be on a stage with Rudy Valley because they said, what you don't understand, Bobby, is that many, many, many years ago when you were this big and we carried you around, every household in America, as they watched Time Daily too, uh, used to be tuned into uh, uh, the Fleischman Hour, I guess it was, where uh, every radio in the country, you know, you, all the kids would be shunted off to another room. Yeah. And in that day and age, in that historical moment, uh, Rudy Valley was always on your time is, is my time. time and he would open up his radio show and I was going to appear with him on the stage. Now Rudy was a very uh, interesting <coughs> man. He did not like to rehearse because he had so many years of experience. He didn't have any fear. There was no fear in Mr. Valley. There was nothing about opening night or anything else that bothered him. And you know, I learned the lines. And uh, as a matter of fact, he used to drive Frank Lesser crazy because he had a song to sing, and he'd sing it twice and say, "That's it. I'll see you opening night." And, uh, <laughs> he didn't know that theater people said, "No, we have to rehearse this every day." And he went, "Every day that song? I know it now. Why do I?" <laughs> and he really got himself in trouble by uh, being adamant about it. Uh, like, 
this is silliness. The theater is silly. This I is don't know why we're rehearsing this number that many times. <laughs> Talk about ensemble acting. No. Yeah. I loved Rudy. I really did. He was, he was good. He used to sell house seats. Oh. I don't mean it that way. I, I mean, this was a day to not, not sell the house seats. He used to make seats. He made seats. He had someone make him seats. He had five or six seats that could attach to the back, you know, where people stand. He had seats that could attach there, and he'd sell them to friends. He'd make another $50, $60 a week by selling his standing room seats to people. You're right. I've just given every time an, an idea, you know. But you know, there are performers that are working today that do not understand why notes are being given to them. They know the part. They're working in it, and why do I have to have any note-taking, or why do we have to rehearse again? Do you have that now? Does anybody come back to you to go into that about what that means to you when you're doing a part, you're into it, and a director happens to come in and says, I think that it's down. Well, you're responsible for, <laughs> for the, the production agreed upon. I mean, what, what you open with, what, degree, what you've agreed to do in terms of the action or the focus of the, uh, of the moments, they can be shifted. I mean, people can suddenly start to uh, get a little, take a little longer time for themselves in one instance or, or not, not throw the ball at the right time to the other actor or something. And the stage manager is responsible or the other actors occasionally for uh, correcting it, for saying, no, you know, for tightening it back up to the original production's level. Uh, sure, you might, uh, when you have an understudy come in, to is taking out the improvements. Yes. <laughs> yes. When you've started to embellish a little too much. Yeah. Which well, usually you are, I feel. <laughs> 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 okay, can I say something on two books? Oh, please. Because uh, this is rather um, anarchic of me. <laughs> but I can't help it. Uh, <laughs> I've done so much experimental acting and improvisation uh, in classical plays. And my feeling, um, I, I suffered intensely when I was uh, first acting because the stage manager was always saying to me, uh, your performance is different from, from yesterday or tomorrow or last week or whatever it was. And uh, I found that very worrying because, uh, and finally I confirm it, and, uh, and this is wha what I want to say is that I don't see how everybody, <coughs> we have to be kept on tracks, obviously if we're self-indulgent, self we've got to be kept uh, back uh, onto the tracks and be taught somehow to be less selfish. But apart from that, I would say that uh, none of us are the same from minute to minute or hour to hour and certainly not from day to day. Uh, the play therefore has to move and change. I think that change is valid and frightfully important because it throws the actor back onto the, his uh, other actors, his colleagues. And in that way, you continue uh, what I consider the most important thing in acting, which is the rehearsal period. And I think we can grow through acting uh, by uh, continuing the rehearsal. Uh, but I, I rush to say we must not be self-indulgent and, and selfish. But I think for us to have this kind of specter over our heads that we're not doing 
exactly the same performance as we did yesterday is uh, <coughs> totally impossible because the performance is, didn't begin that way. And therefore, I think change and uh, a pulse within a production every night is vital. And I, don't, I think if, if you're churning out the same performance, you're acting alone and you are automatic and you don't have the, uh, the organic um, growth that you, you, you create with other actors. I um, think that a lot of, of, of what you said is going to come back to you with questions being asked about how you arrived at what you told us you do. And this is the part where we open two questions and there are so many to be asked, I'm going to do it very quickly. So would you please come up, address it, and make it quick, simple? My name's Maureen Gillespie, theater lover. Uh, the question is for Ms. Daly's and uh, Turner. How did you personally deal with the comparisons made to those, the people that you had to follow uh, the stars that in, in your current <laughs> roles. <laughs> and now that you've each put your own unique imprimatur on, on the parts, uh, how do you feel about becoming the next person's nightmare? <laughs> <laughs> take it away, time. You take this one, Kathleen. <laughs> I'm blowing my nose. <laughs> I consider myself part of a sisterhood of actors. It was a great part. It can withstand the assault of a lot of different actors. It's a great part and a great play. And it used to belong to, to uh, uh, Ethel Merman, and it belonged for a while to Angela Lansbury, and it belongs for a little while. So I kind of borrowed. I borrowed it for a while. Mm -hmm. Now it's mine for a bit, and I certainly hope there's someone who's come and take it away, and that they'll have a hell of a time following my act. The spectrum more of Maggie uh, that I have am up against is more in film than on stage. Mm -hmm. Um, but th the fact is, Ms. Taylor's, uh, I suppose she's the one that really comes to mind when you think of Maggie the Cat. But she didn't have the material that I have to work with. They, they cut the heck out of the play when they, when they went to film it, uh, trying to erase any suggestion of homosexuality and all this stuff, which of course simply butchered the part, the material. So um, I, I, I feel, I mean, the comparisons are silly in a sense. We're just so so extraordinarily different in our approaches toward everything that I can think of, you know, body, you know, builds and I would, I would hope though that I will, I will st put a stamp on this role for stage that will be difficult to, to fight. <laughs> yes. Hi, I'm Pat Skinner from Dallas, Texas, from the Dallas Alliance Theater. This is basically to uh, all of you that are doing the ensemble and for you alone. Um, <laughs> I can't help going through my mind that uh, the people on stage are not just the ensemble. It's that glass you have to pick up. It's that cane you have to work with. All of those things, the whole stage is an ensemble itself. Could I have some um, comments? What's the question? Props? We're talking props. Question. I was going to say, for one thing, that flies in the face of Gene Dalrymple's theory that everything it's is mental. mental. <laughs> yes. So this is an ardent championship of the, of the physical over the mental. Good for you. Yeah. Well, I enjoyed my. I enjoyed the putting on the stockings bit. I understand that that's, that's so you know, that's sure. a nice prop. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, that's a Thank prop you. I enjoy. 
Two quick What's questions for Tom. Um, I'm an alumni from NCSA, and I saw a piece you directed in 80, 85 down there. Is there any directing in your future? And also, um, what is the one role that's written now that you've always wanted to play? Um, uh, uh, I, I don't know if I'll direct. Uh, I, I, there was a period of time where about once a year I'd go someplace as quiet as I could find to work and, and see if my skills lay in that direction. I'm not satisfied that they do. Um, I'm very good at directing when it's not my job. <laughs> I, I do like working on the development of a story, so uh, maybe something away from acting in that in that direction. As far as parts that exist, uh, uh, boy, I never know what the answer to that is. Um, usually, it's the part I'm playing at the time, or the one I'm getting ready to play is the one that that obliterates all other possibilities. Thank you. Hi, I'm Virginia Linden. I'm an actress. This question is for Irene Worth or anybody that would like to address it. Um, regarding an acting career, do you think that the actor can create their own specific breakthrough, or do you think it's just a matter of working very hard and being lucky? I think it's luck and talent. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what is it they said that the road of luck is where the road of opportunity and the road of preparation meet? So you have to be prepared to grab that opportunity that, when it comes. It's hard. Don't put your daughter on the stage. So <laughs> I know it's hard, but what would you say to your daughter who wants to go on the stage today? I don't Where think do you, you can stop anybody who wants to, who has, the, the urge uh, cannot be stopped. That's a sort of worm that we have. And there's absolutely no way you can stop it. It will come out. What's the most important part of it? The agent? The, the no, talent. Training? The talent. The talent. Well, the until dedication. you find the talent, until you, until you exhibit the talent, what, what, where do you come from? Where do you get that to that part that you are now exhibiting talent? The talent comes from genes, I suppose. <laughs> I don't know. It's a, it's a miracle. It's a mir miracle of, of nature that somebody can suddenly write uh, the Ninth Symphony or can be Duza or Garbo or, I mean, I don't know, or, or a great poet or a great painter. These, these are mysterious things that nobody knows anything about. Could call it ego. It begins with that, self-fulfillment, but then the, the direction it goes is something else. Who can tell that? Practically speaking, I see it just hitting the pavements every day, going out for those. You know, casting directors half the time in New York, I think, when they see you for the fourth or fifth time, even if they've never seen your work, you become familiar to them because they've seen you in the office five times. So uh, it's, it's just repetition also, I think. I've also heard that uh, Sylvia Miles apparently said once that every time you get a job, it's a miracle. Which is the way. Well, Sylvia, that's true of some people and others. <laughs> um, yes, I'm Susan Pingleton. I'm an actress here in the city. And I was wondering if any of you have any comments on the upside to having to go on a lot of auditions. Is there a lesson to be learned from all the auditioning that you do? I got a good yeah. I auditioned for eight years at the Mark Taper Forum. They knew me very well. <laughs> <laughs> I, want, I kept saying, hello, I'm an actress, I live here, and I, I like to be on your stage. 
And I was waiting to do an audition for some plays I really wanted to do. They were doing a, a rolling ref with a play called Ashes and a play called The Three Sisters, and I desperately wanted to be in both of them. And I was sitting, waiting, sweating, in this very familiar room where you sat and waited and sweated regularly, and then walked down the hall to go in through the doors to face the judges. And um, <coughs> I'd taken all my lessons, and I'd learned a poem a day and stuff to keep my mind alive. And I thought everybody did that. I didn't know that that was an ambitious thing to do. Um, <laughs> and I'd done my children, and I'd done my television shows and stuff. And I, there was a very good casting director there who came down and said, okay, time on your turn. I said, oh, gosh, Gordon, Gordon Hunt, right arm of Gordon Davidson at that time. I said, oh, Gordon, here we go. I got it. He said, oh, time. It's a chance to act on Thursday. And a little click happened in my mind that has served me well ever since. I will always read for people. I love readings now. Yes, it's a chance yes. to show your wares. And it's a perfectly honest thing to do in, in your profession. And you go and say, sure, I'll audition. Randall can audition. I can audition. That thing of saying I won't read, I think, is very silly. It's a I chance to act on Thursday. Yes. So if that helps you at all, Thanks. take it, it away. Does help <laughs> Thank you. Did you audition for Gypsy? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Twice. What about, uh, <laughs> let's talk about auditioning. Uh, I didn't. I was, uh, I was working down in Georgia, and it was a series of phone calls. But I did ask is if I could come up and read. Uh, uh, there was a point where I was feeling ambivalent, and I said, if I still feel this way, I would like to come and read for you, and then we can talk and make sure this is a good idea. That's an opportunity for the actor to, to audition the director as well, in a sense, to see how he would work or what his suggestions mean to you. and. Also to make sure that they know what they're paying yeah. for, that, they, that, that it's not just an image that they have, but that in a room that they're f comfortable with. Yeah, with Kat on our tin roof, we, uh, I came, we read everyone, and I came to every reading so that we, I met everyone who was auditioning for the roles and reading with them as Maggie, uh, so that they would know what they would be working against, too, which made sense to me. I think it gives you confidence that you can do it, because uh -huh. as in Tyne's case, I mean, my goodness, you're going to do a major musical, and they want to know whether you can sing a little, you can, if, if they don't know, uh, you know what you are, and, and you have to go up there and want to do it, and do it, and have the courage to get up there in front of them and sing a song, and, and uh, you go there and you do it, you know, and you knock them dead, and they go, yeah, you got it. Yeah. Thank you, and you feel good about it. In my case, I mean, I had to be Truman Capote. <laughs> I mean, they had no idea. <laughs> they sent me the script. Well, you know, uh, they had, uh, they didn't have any idea to entrust uh, something like this to any actor. Uh, you must go in front of them and say, look, I'd better read this to see if I'm close to, I'm not going to do the full character or anything like that. I don't know that all of that stuff yet, but let me just see if I can get a feeling for you uh, as I read it. So when I read Truman Capote, the script for them, and uh, uh, I read about seven or eight pages and stuff like that, and uh, I was a little nervous about it because I, you know, I was putting the cart before the horse and all of that, and, uh, you know, I'd rather learn it and work on it, but I knew I had to have that voice or something like there's some semblance of the character within me or whether I could do it, so. Did you know Truman? No, I, I didn't know him. But your voice is totally is totally true to him and totally unlike your own. That is Ooh, such a yeah, tour de force yeah. to do yeah. that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think most of us can do that. I, you'd be surprised. I think most actors can uh, uh, become a flamboyant character, a, a character that is flamboyant. I don't mean flamboyant in the sense of just Truman Capote. I mean, it would be much more difficult for me to do uh, any of you 
because there's no flamboyancy there, do you know? But Give us a chance. Give us a chance. Give us a chance. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean on the, on the, <laughs> what do we have to I mean on the strict sense, I'm not talking about the way we act backstage. <laughs> but I think that serves us well, the way we act backstage, because we do <laughs> let our head down. This is a boulevard of broken dreams, that's what this is. Audition? Did you? I did audition for some Americans. Um, my experience, though, was that I hadn't read the play when I auditioned. I had it like two hours. You know, they go get over to Lincoln Center. So um, I had. Uh, they asked me to look at two different characters, which I did. And then basically, he said, "Which character do you have open?" At which point, <coughs> and I said, "You know, Betty." And so he. I said, "Tell me about this woman." He told me. I did the scene, and I didn't know if you know. I didn't know the character, so I mean, I. Um, but then I, I was the last person they saw, and they offered me the part two hours later. So I thought, <laughs> and then I read the play, and that was a really scary experience, actually, because yes. I, you know, I, and I, I didn't like it when I first read it, and I thought, oh, no, you know, oh, God, you know, what do I do? And then I read it again, and then I decided, you know, yeah, I think I'll give this a shot, but it was weird. I auditioned for a film uh, yesterday, well, the day before. That's all I have to say. I rushed to say I don't think I got it, but anyway, I did. And I enjoyed it. Uh, it's a bit, uh, indescribably difficult to audition. For a film, more so for than for the theater? Yes, I know. Which no, is more difficult? Uh, unless you have a, a real knowledge of the, of, the per, of the person you're supposed to be playing, but I mean, if it's a new script and the director has a very very clear idea of, of what he wants, but you don't know that, <coughs> and uh, so you might fit in, you might not, and you might you might have got better or different or whatever the director wanted. But it's sort of cold turkey. I think it's terrible. Well, I mean, I did it, and I did it with. <coughs> I enjoyed doing it, uh, and I think that it's a very important thing to do. Uh, but uh, it's hard. I once had an audition for a girl who was doing seagull, and uh, she did that, I'm a seagull, speech, superbly, but uh, she never did it after the audition. <laughs> I think we have room for just one more. Hi, I'm Laurie Lawrence, and I'd like to ask Mr. Morse, what was the GI Bill and how did it affect you? There you are, talking about the history. Way <laughs> back. <laughs> The GI Bill of Rights. So when you, I was in the service. I was in the Navy for four years. And uh, after you got out of the Navy, uh, the, um, the, the, um, the American government, whoever they were, uh, they, uh, they would give you so much money to study in college or school, and they would pay some benefits at that time. That's a long time ago. To go to school. So the GI Bill of Rights uh, afforded me the uh, opportunity to go to the American theater wing. And I'll pick on that now because it was at that time uh, the American Theatre Wing was where professionals came back to rehone their trade to to learn again what it was to be either an actor or a director or a playwright or a composer and everybody in the theatre world gave of their services to the wing. They were part of the faculty of the school. And out of that grew the hospital show programs, and from the hospital show programs 
through uh, school plays. They, all of it was a part of going out and going before an audience and make sure that you knew what you were doing, you had the training, and you could move from one side of the theater to the other to know what the role of the director was or the playwright or the actor was. The doors were open and they went through in each one. And the wing today continues to do that. And these seminars really are an outgrowth of that. The programs that we do, the American Theater Wing's all year round programs come from that too. It was a wonderful concept at that time of what it was to serve the community through the theater. The Saturday Theater for program, the Saturday Theater for School program services an enormous amount of, of school children. Over a quarter of a million children this year will have seen live theater in over 70 public schools, professional theater going in on Saturday mornings under the banner of the American Theater Wing. And I am Isabel Stevenson, I have to go into that. I am president of the American Theater Wing. People say, oh, the American Theater Wing, the Tony Awards, and I'm very proud of the Tony Awards because it is a reward for excellence in the theater, but it also stands for the year-round programs, the year-round programs of service to the community. And this seminar on working in the theater on the performance is coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. And I cannot thank enough, I find myself constantly saying thank you, thank you, thank you to the theater community that come to the wing and that come to these seminars and give of their time and their talents so that they can share what it is to work in the theater with everyone else. Thank you very much for being here. <laughs>